Thank you. It's, I'm so sorry I can't be with you. And I feel, I feel bad that we had to do this all online, but I really appreciate uh, your flexibility as well. Um, it's good to see some familiar faces, uh, the Longs and, and the Fickerts, of course. Um, prior to coming to Central Washington, we were, I was a pastor and a church planter up in Bellingham for 14 years um, after leaving uh, Regent, where I was a student under uh, Phil. Uh, and my wife knew Polly as well from some classes. Um, so it's good to see some familiar faces. Uh, wish we could be with you. Um, just a little bit about the school. Um, just to explain a little bit, we're a discipleship school for those uh, post high school age on up into the 30s, sort of a gap year program. We have two different four month discipleship residential programs um, as students come and stay with us. We have essentials in the fall. And then the Ascent program in the spring. The Essentials is kind of a basic Christianity course. Um, we have speakers coming in each week, usually pastors from around the Northwest, uh, come in and teach on various topics. And then they do a three-week missions trip at the end. And then the Ascent program is, is a more practical theology, uh, applied theology, vocational theology kind of focus. How do we apply what we've learned? How do we start to think ahead now? Um, living as Christians, living out what we believe, uh, in whatever direction God calls us. Uh, William Farrelly is, is, we've had the privilege of having him with us for the fall, and he's about to join us this next week for the Ascent program as well. Um, looking forward to that. But all that to say, if you know someone who might be interested in that, we would love, I would love to talk with them. Um, it's a program that uh, I love and have seen real benefits out of it. Um, um, and just the need for it at this time is just so huge. Um, so yeah, feel free to ask me questions about that later and my contact information is easy to get to. So all that let's, um, I'm going to try sharing my screen with y'all because it's easy to read. Let's see if I can do this. Uh, nervous about this. Here we go. Oh, I don't know if it's going to work. This might not work. Okay, never mind. We won't do it. <laughs> All right. If you could turn to 1 Corinthians 6, um, I'm going to read verses 12 through 20, and then we'll pray, and, and I'll get into what we have this morning. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. 
Lord, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the means to gather together with your saints, even though we can't physically be uh, together. Thank you for this church, Lord, for the ministry that's been established in the Skagit Valley, um, for the great people that you've called together uh, in your, your name, to be your people, to be a light to that valley, to raise up children, to know you, and to walk in your ways. Um, Pray for them, Lord, in our, our time together this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would build us up in your word, that you would encourage us, challenge us, stir us up with a love for those who are lost, and, and give us a, a just a, a fresh energy as we begin this new year to live lives that glorify you, because you have bought us with, with the price of your son. Pray that that would result, result in, in joy and true freedom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one of the nice things about being a substitute preacher is that I have the opportunity to pick my own sermons. I'm not tied to it, some sort of a, a Lexio Continuum. Uh, so I can, I can shift around as, as the Spirit carries me. Um, this, this passage, or this sermon, was, was largely inspired by a book I read this last year. One, one of my favorite books from this last year by a, a professor down at Oklahoma Baptist University named Alan Noble. And he wrote a book called You Are Not Your Own. Uh, he is, in addition to a professor, editor-in-chief of Christ and Pop Culture. It's an online publication and also a co-founder of a group called Public Faith, which is an evangelical uh, political organization. So he's someone who um, works in similar spheres as I do in terms of working with young people, young Christians, but also is, is pretty in tune with the larger um, issues, title movements of the culture and is thinking at that level. And, and so his taking all that into account, the premise of the book is that we are living in this cultural moment that's built on a particular understanding of what it means to be human, which says, in effect, we are each our own. We belong to ourselves. Um, and I wish I could share these. I want to give you a couple of extended quotes just to help you hear this in his own words. So I'll read this slowly because I can't put it on screen. He says this, just to explain himself a little bit more. To be your own and belong to yourself means that the most fundamental truth about existence is that you are responsible for your existence and everything that it entails. I am responsible for living a life of purpose, of defining my identity, of interpreting meaningful events, of choosing my values and electing where I belong. If I belong to myself, then I am the only one who can set limits on who I am or what I can do. No one else has the right to define me, to choose my journey in life, or to assure me that I am okay. I belong to myself. There's, I mean, some of that's not new. Some of that's as old as, as humanity itself, but you can certainly, you've seen some of this. I, I would imagine you've seen some of this in play out there, this idea of no one can define me. I I am the only one who can define myself. I'm free from rules, from traditions, from culture, from other people's opinion. I'm a blank slate, that sort of thing. Um, and we see this everywhere. We see it particularly in the discussions these days over you know, what is race, what is gender, what is sexuality, who are we in, in, in these different spheres that we've, we've had defined before now are, are rejecting. There's two important ideas at play here. One is this question of identity. Specifically, who gets to decide who I am? And then with that, and, and a really important component to this is this pursuit of freedom. 
there's this there's a sense driving this that unless I am free to define myself, I'm not really free. So that's the carrot at the end of this pursuit. I want to strip all this stuff away so I can be free. So I can maybe within that be safe, be happy, all those things. Um, and Noble argues that this mindset has worked its way into virtually every aspect of contemporary life, largely thanks to the technology, which itself reflects that sort of self-pursuit, self-made person, experimentative uh, kind of approach to life. Um, but every aspect, whether it's, whether it's arts and culture, whether it's politics, economics, education, vocation, even, and I think most, most importantly for us to consider, even, even how we understand and practice spirituality slash religion, how we think about ourselves as Christians. Um, just, just as an example, and I see this quite a bit, is how we approach devotional habits. Devotional habits have become, in many cases, sort of this expression of individualistic spirituality that has no connection to anyone else. And, and, and we just, as long as I'm good with Jesus, as long as I have my quiet time with Jesus, then I'm okay, I'm right, I'm free, and no one else can tell me what that's supposed to look like. Now, there's, I mean, there's pros and cons to that, but I think that's, there's some evidence there, or some indication that's part of this larger cultural move that he talks about. He says, not, not only is it affected that, but it's, it's both hard for us to see sort of a, an example of the fish doesn't know it's wet. It's so, we're so immersed in it that's hard for us to recognize it, hard to step outside of ourselves and see it, but also it's just hard to escape because it's so pervasive. I mean, we, you know, whatever your Luddite tendencies are, we, we are nevertheless largely controlled by the technology that we have and enjoy these days. It's hard to break out of it. The problem is, that this is a false promise, this pursuit of defining myself, this pursuit of freedom in this way. I'll give you another quote from him. The freedom of sovereign individualism comes at a great price. Once I am liberated from all social, moral, natural, and religious values, I become responsible for the meaning of my own life. With no God to judge or justify me, I have to be my own judge and redeemer. This burden manifests itself as a desperate need to justify our lives through identity crafting and expression. But because everyone else is also working frantically to craft and express their own identity, society becomes a space of vicious competition between individuals for attention, meaning, and significance, not unlike the contrived drama of reality TV. And I would add to that, it's also something that leads to a turn inward rather than outward or away from others into ourselves. But that idea of competition uh, is really, that link to competition, I think, is really profound. Because I, I think it, it's an important insight as we think about our calling to the world around us, to be light to dark, to, to those that are lost in darkness, to not just, not just as a strategy to reach them, but also just to take the time to, to empathize with what that lostness might be like, to, to strip everything away and in the end have nothing. Where do you go from there? I, I don't know if you feel that when you hear some of these, if you've heard any of these stories of people who have switched genders, who have gone through both the chemical and the surgical procedures to change themselves from male to female or, or, or vice versa. 
and then realize after all that that they still haven't really found who they are. And they change back. And some of them have done this enough where you start to wonder what, what, how do they understand themselves in any way anymore? Um, I, I think there's, it's easy, it's easy to fall into the cultural habit to look at that and sort of say, well, they made their bed. That's what they, now they have to sleep in it. This is what they deserve. But I think for us as Christians, we have a calling to go beneath that and, and really feel the state of that lostness, to have that real compassion for those who really don't have an answer once they exhaust themselves in this pursuit. But I think it's also an important insight into the hearts of many Christians that the desire to define ourselves, define ourselves, to, to be meaningful is, is not something that we're immune from in the church. And we feel that sense of competition even within, amongst Christians at times. Uh, whether it's whether it's the you know the kind of the superficial race for getting as many people to come to church to be as big a church or a successful ministry or as visible a ministry, or even even more basic is this competition to be the best prayer warrior in your circles, the best you know the the best at maintaining a daily Bible reading schedule or sharing the gospel with non-believers or whatever it is. There, there are at times it, it devolves into this sort of competition again that I think is linked to identity. If I do these things, then I will be something. I'm not confined by those things. And it's, it's a terrible way to go. So what's the answer? That's, that's, Noble has an answer that we'll, I'll, I'll weave into this, but I want to bring this back to the text that we're looking at. So if you come back to 1 Corinthians 6, um, in this passage, Paul is dealing with a, a similar challenge. Members of the Corinthian church were promoting a radical kind of freedom. I mean, Paul, Paul at times uh, writes in a way where he's stating what his, his hearers are saying and then responding to them. So, so this first, in verse 12, for example, he begins with, all things are lawful for me. Um, in, in the ESV, and I think this is right, he is quoting what they're saying to him. So here's one of the things they're saying. All things are lawful to me. And then a little bit later, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. Let's start with the first one. All things are lawful for me. In essence, it seems to be saying that Christians are free people. We're not meant to be limited, right? You think of that in terms of, in terms of what at that time they, Christianity brought them out of. Some who were coming out of, out of different cultic religions. You had slaves in the mix. Freedom was a meaningful word. We're free, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about why they, why they might think that way in a little bit here, but, but Christians are free people. We're free from the law. We're free to do what we want. We have rights. Or food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for food seems to be an argument of how, if God made this, if God made this this way, how, how can you restrict what's good for us, what we're made for? So in fact, to be a Christian is to live without limits. And if this is... If this is what they were believing, this is how they were functioning, this might be the reason why there were so many problems in the Corinthian church. Whether it's the factions over different leaders uh, within the church, Peter, Paul, Apollos, Jesus, they were all separating into their own little groups. Whether it was toleration of, of gross public sin uh, that even those outside the church were shaking their heads at, lawsuits between believers, 
Uh, in chapter 11, Paul describes as free-for-all at the Lord's table, where, where some were seen as basically a buffet at the exclusion of those who weren't prominent enough, strong enough, wealthy enough, important enough. Or you get towards the end of 1 Corinthians where you have these descriptions of public worship that without any restraint, it's just a madhouse. Everyone exercising their gifts simultaneously. Again, almost a, a competition sort of thing. Now, I, I would expect that, that part of their defense would be, this is what you t- taught us, Paul. And he did, in, in a way. In Galatians 5.1, he says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom, brothers. Or Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. That doesn't make sense, actually. Sometimes I get verses in here that don't make sense. That's not one of them. But the freedom ones, what was I thinking of? I don't know. But Paul has stressed freedom from the law before, and it seems like they were taking this and really running with it. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what I meant. And it comes, his response is really centered around this, this question of identity. Who are you? And Paul's answer is, well, you're not your own. In one sense, this has always been true. We are creatures. From day one, we belong to God because we are his workmanship, made in his image. And it's at the heart of Adam and Eve's fall that, that this ownership was rejected. God's not good. He's not trustworthy. The reason why God kept us from the tree was because he wanted to protect himself from us becoming like him. He wanted to protect his sovereign domain. So he can't be good because he's not really doing that for your benefit, Adam and Eve. He's doing that for his. And out of that, I would argue that the thought that drove Adam and Eve was, well, if that's the case, if God is not good, then the only one I can trust to look out for my best interests is me. But that's not all here. So, so we've always, it's always been true that we've never been ourselves, but even more so for the Christian we are not our own because we've been bought with a price. Jesus bought us with his own life. It's at the heart of that term redemption or, or redeemed that, that we use so often. We've been bought. We belong now to God, soul, body, everything. And it's not just, not just that he paid a price, but also that he saved us from something that, that this belonging to him also has this dimension of we owe him our lives. We were lost. We were hopeless. We had no name, no hope, no access to the covenant of God's people. We were, we were outsiders in every sense of the word, only destined for the wrath of God, and he died for us. He purchased us. So it's not just simply a matter of who holds the receipt on our lives. We've been spared. We've been shown mercy. We've been rescued, and the proper response of that is gratitude, is a, is a desire to live for that person. And I think that's at the heart of what Paul says. I'll give you a couple of passages here. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, 
but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And that for their sake is the really important part here. Because he didn't just die. He didn't just pay a price. He did that for me. He did that for you. He knew you. He saved you. He spared you. And so we, we change how we view our life. Or Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives me lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are not our own. You are not your own. To, to the person caught in this mindset of I am my own, I must be my own. This is terrifying news. But, but the implications of this, of this identity that Paul is preaching is to, to live this way is the only way to truly be free. If I can bring back Noble's quote again. We're no longer responsible for the meaning of our own life. We've been made by God. We have been bought with Christ's body. We are loved. We are redeemed. We are in covenant. We have a father. We have a home. Our identity, all the blanks on what, who we are and what we're meant for have been filled by God in Christ. We no longer have to be our own judge and redeemer. What a sad and tragic thing to believe otherwise. We can't save ourselves. We can't justify our own lives. We are helpless to carry out this task. And that's been relieved. That's been taken off our shoulders by God. And we've been set free from the endless and pointless and vicious competition of trying to prove ourselves. Where where Noble goes with it, this is so valuable because he turns this whole meditation of the book into a meditation on the Heidelberg Catechism, first, first Lord's Day. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yes, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. We are free. We are truly free. Praise the Lord. But, back to this passage, it also means that it doesn't just mean that we are free, but we are also then free to limit our own freedoms, both out of consideration for ourselves. There are freedoms that are not beneficial to us, that are unhealthy for us, that, that are capable of enslaving us. And though we are free, because we belong to Christ, we must learn to say no to those things that keep us from him, that keep us from living from that, that cool our hearts towards him, towards his gospel, towards his glory. But then also to consider those around us in love, our fellow believers. As Paul says in Romans 14, 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat or eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. We limit our freedoms out of love for each other. That's a hard one these days. 
And I think it's, it's one that I think exposes some of our captivity to, to this worldly mindset. But not just our fellow believers, but also to our neighbors. I've been, in conjunction with this passage, I've also been preaching out of uh, 1 Corinthians 9 over the last few months, particular 9, 19 through 23. This is, this is, I used to see this in terms of evangelistic or missional technique, but there's a, a deeper principle here that Paul is expressing that really ties into what we're looking at here today. He writes, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I may share with them in its blessings. Where we are tempted to exercise our own rights, define our own identity, we are living in denial of what Christ has done on the cross for us, what God has accomplished for us in Christ. We are free. We've been bought. We've been given that identity, that meaning, that purpose. We no longer have to strive for it. We're therefore free to lay down our rights for others, to lay down our freedoms for the sake of others, to think of others rather than be consumed with thinking of ourselves. And that is, that is a precious freedom that's been bought. It's a freedom that few people know. But we have that, brothers and sisters. That is our gift. That is our legacy. That is our hope as the people of God. So my prayer for us as we, as we face this new year that we take to heart, that we, that we come back to, to this text and, and really ground ourselves in what God has made of us and, and see those places where we have taken on the project of self-identity, self-definition, self-justification, that we might repent, but also that we might know that freedom that comes from being redeemed in Christ and, and, and find new ways. Um, to express that freedom and how we love our fellow brothers and sisters and how we love those around us for his sake, for their sake, that is our joy. That's our privilege. That's our freedom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you have given us in Christ. It's easy at times to take for granted what was accomplished on the cross and move on to other things. Um, But this is the hour in which you've called us back to Calvary to see ourselves in the shadow of the cross, what we deserved versus what we've been given, what our sins demand and what price has been paid. May we hear, Lord, the the depth and the richness and the wonder of that statement. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And we we might be free, really free. So Lord, Lord, first fill our hearts with, with that reflection. And secondly, Lord, that you would teach us to live out that freedom as you meant it to be lived out. Not according to the ways of the world. The world 
world does not know this freedom. The world does not understand this. Doesn't believe it's possible. But it is what you've given us. And, and may we live in it. May we live it out. May that be the hope that we take to those around us. We're lost. Who are despairing. Who, who are living tragic lives in the pursuit of meaning. And find it empty with nowhere to turn. May we be there for them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.